Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now. So welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Show. For those that are watching here on uh, YouTube or other means, uh, hello. And, you know, you miss the, the intro that the podcast gets, but the Compassionate Capitalist Show is all about helping entrepreneurs and investors create the wealth that they want to out of successful entrepreneur endeavors, bringing innovation to market, creating jobs and creating wealth for all those involved. And we strive to educate our entrepreneurs, listeners, as well as our investors, listeners about the sources of capital, about growth strategies, all the things that are needed in order to get to that ideal spot that they can have an exit and get the return on their investment. And so it's really important, you know, a lot of you that listen to this, uh, watch this show on a regular basis know that we talk about these two main pools of capital as angel investors and venture capital, you know, angels being private money from individuals and venture capital typically pooled funds from wealthy individuals and institutional funds. But there's a third category that is big and dominant, but is often overlooked and misunderstood. And that is the private equity capital. Today, my guest, Dominic Rinaldi of Sun Acquisitions, you can wave to those that are watching right now. Hey, everybody. Um, will join me here to discuss the role of private equity funds as a growth capital, but also as an exit strategy for many closely held private companies and, uh, and, and this whole scope of, of what you know entrepreneurs and, and the growth of, of private enterprise is. So let me introduce you to Dominic so you can understand why it is so awesome that he is my guest today. So Dominic Rinaldi is the owner and managing partner of Sun Acquisitions. It's a Chicago-based merger and acquisitions firm. He's also a speaker, author, and host of the M&A Unplugged podcast. He was awarded the professional designation of Certified Business Intermediary from the International Business Brokerage Association and is considered an expert in the field of business brokerage. He is a seasoned executive. He brings over 30 years of proven experience in merger acquisition, sales, service, marketing, and operations to the business brokerage arena. That experience ranges from his experience as an executive roles in Fortune 500 companies, as well as to the CEO of and uh, executive management of multiple tech startups. Dominic's firm, Sun Acquisition, specialized in helping the owners of privately held companies with annual revenues between $2 million and $30 million to scale, acquire, and sell businesses. He has been personally involved in over 300 businesses for the sale transactions across a broad range of industries and is considered an expert in his field. So welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Show, Dominic. Hey, Karen. Thank you so much for having me here. Absolutely. So first, let's uh, explain a little bit to our listening audience. What was the catalyst for your move from the operational side of entrepreneurism and small business to the funding side of the table for managing the growth of small business, specifically within private equity space? Yeah, you know, so I, I've always had an entrepreneurial streak. Uh, going back to when I was a kid, I was always trying to create opportunities and look at ways to uh, uh, generate, you know, money and solve problems. 
And so, you know, I, I went into my corporate career and was reared in a Fortune 500 company and spent 14 years there, went on to run a couple of, as you mentioned, tech companies. But I always had the itch for owning my own business. And around 2004, 2005, I found myself in transition. And I thought, you know, that was the right time for me to maybe you know, explore owning my own business. And I went out into the marketplace to find something that I could acquire. And in the process of trying to find something, I was working with folks like myself, M&A advisors, uh, who were showing me you know, their engagements, their client engagements. Um, and I started, I started to just do my homework and get enamored with what these folks were doing and how they were doing it. And the more and more I did my research, uh, more I thought, you know, this might be a great opportunity for me. It would bring all of my experiences um, throughout my career to bear. And I thought the opportunity, the timing was right. And luckily, I found a firm in Chicago, an M&A firm, small at the time, that was for sale, um, met a couple of folks that were in the business for a long time. We partnered up and next thing I know, you know, I did my research and I bought this business and here I am 17 years later, ah. um, having built this business, we've, we've, we've expanded it dramatically over the years. Yeah. Great. Yeah. With like 300. So is it 300 transactions since you acquired? The- so I personally have been involved in over 300. My firm has eclipsed the 400 uh, mark. Oh, wow. So um, as you can imagine, as the managing partner and owner, I get involved in a lot of the transactions. I now 17 years later, don't do any transactions personally myself. Uh, I have a team of folks that, you know, really run the transactions I get involved when they need me to, but um, 17 years later, I've been able to build a, a largely self-managing business. Oh, that's great. Well, that's uh, that's the ideal. Build the clock. It'll always tell time. Yep. Right? Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly. So well, I'd like to kick off our conversation by laying out two of the most common reasons that companies sort of get stuck or have a relatively flat growth curve and may seek out private equity capital as an alternative to this more widely known sources of capital of angels and VCs. So <clears throat> the area that I uh, most typically am involved with are those companies that, you know, have provide, have, you know, raised capital, seed capital um, from angel investors. They invest in these high growth potential startups. It's typically followed by venture capital to sort of keep that momentum going. And for many different reasons, we will find that that second, third, second and third round of funding will just never really comes for those companies. They just sort of get stuck growing organically through revenues and not really achieving some of the growth milestones that they set out to do when they first you know, started raising capital as a startup. And they, they simply do not have the growth capital to accelerate their growth past their current revenue state. So that's sort of like type A or scenario one. And then there are those family-run companies that have operated for many years and they're privately held and they've been providing, you know, they've been profitable and all of that. And then there's a second generation coming in that sees potential to bring innovation to the market or growth through acquisitions, but their capital need is not one that can be satisfied by banks, angels, or VCs. So that's sort of our type B scenario two, whatever. So 
Dominic, I want you to build upon that for the owners and the executive teams that are listening to us today that find themselves in either one of these situations. And let's start with the sort of describing to them what the types of ec- private equity funds that are out there, you know, and granted VCs have an industry focus. Do private equity funds also segregate by industry? And, you know, do they make these kinds of growth capitals for, in, you know, infusion of capital for growth purposes and not just- Yeah, a lot, lot, lots to unpack there. I would, I would add a third category of just- okay. Um, that there there are scenarios where private equity can come in when an owner just wants to exit, right? So it's not just about the capital. They want an exit and transition out. And that said, yes, exactly right. Just like VCs, uh, private equity groups have all sorts of mandates, uh, industries, sizes, um, uh, holding periods, you know, all sorts of criteria. Um, it's rare that you see a private equity group that has a very broad approach to the market and they're, you know, they're just looking for opportunities based on size or geography. Usually they have a couple of sectors that they've honed in on where, you know, either the principals uh, or, or, or the private equity group has um, executives in residence that have certain experience and they want to deploy those executives into certain sectors. And so very much focused on uh, size, geography, sectors, those, those sorts of things. And, um, you know, in your first scenario where, you know, owners want to raise capital, uh, private equity could be a great way to do that. Um, it's very smart capital. Uh, you know, these are folks who see hundreds of deals sometimes a year. Uh, they have other operating platform companies. They have a lot of contacts. It's really smart money to bring in. And if there's a good match between the management team and the private equity group, you could have a great marriage because now you're going to have not only all of the, the, the capital that uh, potentially the private equity group can bring to bear, but you're gonna have all of that expertise and knowledge and network and contacts. Um, but you know, it does come at a price. Uh, most private equity groups, and this is not all, but most in the sector that we're working in want majority control. Right. They wanna have a majority position uh, in that investment and most have a timeframe uh, for an exit. They're looking at a five to seven year window where they're going to build that business up, uh, take it to the next level, and then and then flip that business. Uh, and growth can come a lot of different ways. It could come organically because they invest and innovate, or it could come through acquisitions. The private equity group gets behind that company, makes a whole host of acquisitions, and then eventually will look to, to flip that business uh, somewhere in, in the future. Right. So in like the example of scenario two, that could be one where the um, the founder of the company who might be, you know, looking at he built the business or she built the business as their retirement plan. Right. It's like that's a lot of times you have small businesses are like, OK, I'm going to go and I'm going to sell this. But then they have a, a generation of family or people that are within the company that they want to give an opportunity for them to continue to grow that business. So it, it oftentimes seems like it's almost a, a perfect scenario, a partnership where the owner or the founder can take, can exit out a little bit, maybe stay a year. The 
private equity funds can come in in a majority position, the next gen or whoever were the, the uh, operators that now have equity position have this minority piece, but then they all partner up and work together for growing it. And we're all of the value that maybe it's only 20%, but that 20% ends up representing a lot when it comes to an exit. Do, talk about how you have seen that play out with some of your clients, perhaps. Yeah, you know, so um, clients could approach that situation a couple of different ways. Uh, one, um, it's the classic example of somebody after spending 15, 20, 30 years in the business, or if it's a multi-generational business, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, wants to take some chips off the table, but they don't want to leave the business completely. And so they will, what we call recapitalize the business and bring in private equity that come in and take over a majority stake. And the owners or owner and management team uh, will roll over or retain uh, some portion of the equity in the business on a go forward basis. Uh, and, and that brings everybody together. So it, it does a couple of things for the existing ownership. It allows them to take a bunch of money off the table uh, and take, take a deep breath. And then it brings in really smart money to take the business to the next level. And three, five, seven years later, have what we call another bite at the apple. Uh, because there's going to be a second sale. And if it's been successful, they've taken the business to a whole nother level. And now you're selling a much larger business. So you might have rolled over or retained 20, 30% of the original entity, but that 20 to 30% might be worth the original value that you sold the business for, or maybe even more. So you're getting two pretty solid bites at the apple uh, and a very viable way for an ownership team uh, to remain involved in the business, but also, you know, give themselves some insurance by taking some chips off of the table. Now, would that work also within the first scenario? So there's multiple investors, not just the, the equity held by the family or the founder. So like in the scenario that I did in that first one, you had some angel investors, they yeah. did a seed round, maybe they raised a million dollars and got yeah. the company off the ground, but never got that other. And they just, you know, grew along, became that $5 million, $7 million, $10 million company. Right. And then in that recapitalization, they take out the angel investors and continue forward. And is that kind of how that but, plays sometimes? You know, um, I, there is no one size fits all, right? That's probably the most likely scenario that the early stage investors that are not involved in the operation of the business are taken out uh, at the time of that recapitalization. In some cases, there might be a really good strategic reason uh, for everybody to want those investors to remain involved and, and have a stake on a, go, on a go forward basis. And so they might be invited uh, to join in the rollover uh, or the retained equity on a go forward basis. Yeah. So one of the things you, you kind of, you mentioned it earlier when you were talking and I want to revisit that in kind of in relation to private equity compared to venture capital. So, you know, my experience with private equity is, is that they do, when they make an investment, it's like, it's very clear eyed in that they have, they have a, a pathway that they believe is a pathway to an exit 
that if they do stuff with specific intent with this company, with other things that they're looking at, whereas I feel like sometimes venture capital is sort of their scenario is just continuing to throw more money at a company, hoping for an IPO or a big exit, or, you know, they always talk about these unicorns and things along those lines. So do you, so when it comes time to like in that scenario that we described before where they're investing and then there's another exit, if there's additional capital that needs to be brought in in order to actually fuel that growth or, you know, to, to get to that point, is it still a take on the valuation or inflating of the valuation, or is that kind of considered part of the package deal that the private equity fund it says, okay, we're going to, it's going to cost us, let's just use a number 10 million to buy this particular equity for the recapitalization, but we know we're going to invest another 10 million in order to get it to be this $50 million company that we believe we can sell. And so the whole package is sort of factored in as 20 million, even though they're not the full 20 million was at the table at the time. It's just used later on when they do the recapitalization. Yeah. Um, so first off, it, you know, it's not a one size fits all, as you can imagine. Um, you know, there are different types of private equity groups with different uh, objectives and metrics, right? And um, agreements with their investors, right? Because they have an investor pool and they've given them a prospectus and, and there's an expectation as to how the capital is going to be deployed and, and what's going to happen on a go forward basis. Um, but I, 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 most private equity that we're working with places a value on the business based on what it's doing today, but they're buying it because they see the potential. Now, the investment on a go forward basis could happen in lots of different ways, right? It could be a reinvestment of, uh, of, the, uh, of the cash flows of the business. Uh, it could be that they raise more debt um, to go out and, and, uh, and uh, go after that, that um, growth strategy, or it could be that they're throwing in more of their own capital uh, to go after that. And so certainly if they're throwing in more of their capital, it's going to increase the equity base uh, okay. and the investment base, right, on the balance sheet. And so they're going to, they're going to look to get paid that money out first, right? So there, you know, there's lots of different strategies that they could deploy uh, to, to get to their growth. But your point early on is well taken. They're coming in with a real plan, right? I mean, day one, they, they have a pretty good sense of what they want to do with that business and where they want to take it. Uh, whereas, you know, venture capital money uh, is just that, right? I mean, it's venture money, right? I mean, you don't, you don't quite exactly know where that business is going to go. Uh, you, you have some hopes and you're working off of pro formas, private equity doesn't have to work off of pro formas, right? They have historical performance. They can see what the business has done. Um, and, and, and they've got, you know, they're much more informed about, you know, what that, how that business performs and what it could do. Yeah. So that leads into a good sort of uh, another way to, to kind of slice up this marketplace when it comes to private equity funds versus venture type of, of capital. Uh, what is the sort of the minimum revenue or profits uh, for companies that are going to approach private equity funds? Is there a, a scenario where it's it's too small or too young or 
you know, and and versus the other side, like a hundred million dollar company could still get private equity funds. I mean, is there a, a yeah. floor in the ceiling? So, you know, we've we've painted a broad brush here, but um, there are massive private equity groups like KKR okay. uh, that do billion, billion, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of deals. Right. Um and then there are very low level private equity groups who have raised small funds, 30, 50 million, you know, to go do smaller transactions. So, you know, there's a very broad range of private equity groups. Uh, in the market that we service, which is largely the sub 50 million of enterprise value, um, you, you know, you're going to find that, that those private equity groups, you know, are looking to raise you know, a fund of 100 million, 200 million dollars. And they're going after, you know, platform companies that are generating millions of dollars of EBITDA as a, as a minimum threshold. Uh, sometimes we'll see them, you know, have thresholds as low as a million dollars. That's a pretty small private equity group. Right. Uh, by and large, you're looking at a couple of million dollars up of EBITDA. EBITDA. Yeah. And just oh, and just real oh. quick, real quick, explain that to our audience so sure. that, you know, because you and I know what that means, but <laughs> just yeah. in case for some reason. That's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's the bottom um, line. It, it's the, it, it is essentially the bottom line. Yes. And so they're looking at the, at the EBITDA businesses and, and their thresholds uh, and they, they all change, right? I mean, it, it, some could have a million, two million, some have five, 10, $20 million of EBITDA minimum before they're looking to, to make an investment. Now, most private equity groups, though, when they look at in investments, um, there are more than two categories, but the major categories are they're either uh, making a platform investment, meaning this is a company that they're going to they're going to treat as a platform and they're going to grow from and the growth could be organic it could be other acquisitions whatever it is and then there is the add-on strategy so once they have a platform they go out in the marketplace and they help the management team of that company go and acquire whatever it is competitors technology geographic expansion whatever the strategy is They'll help them go out and make those acquisitions. Um, and so they could be looking at either. When they do add-ons, we've seen in the last, I'd say, three to five years, private equity come way down market to businesses that are doing, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars of EBITDA uh, because it makes strategic sense to roll it into and add it into the platform company. Uh, so it's important to note, though, that while the private equity group is probably leading the effort, the business is being folded into the platform. So yeah. it's it's while they may be investing and leading the effort, it's really probably getting folded into the platform. So in that regard, you know, you could say you're doing a deal with private equity, but what you're really doing is a deal with this strategic that happens to be private equity owned and backed, and they're leading the effort for acquisitions. And so in that, is that what they refer to as a roll-up? And then all those companies will be sold as one big company at some point in the future? No, not necessarily. You know, uh, having a platform and adding on doesn't mean it's a roll-up. A roll-up uh, is really where you identify a sector 
and you plan to go acquire as many businesses as you possibly can in that sector, and you're bringing, whether it's technology uh, or some efficiencies to that business, so that by the time you add up all of these competitors, uh, you've created a much larger business with a much larger EBITDA that's going to get a much larger multiple than any of those businesses could have gotten on their own. You know, in a couple of industries that come to mind that are, you know, have been, it's been going on for a while and it continues to go on are, you know, things in the medical industry, healthcare, like dental offices, mm -hmm. uh, medical practices, veterinarian. It happened in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you, if you remember back in the day, all those independent pharmacies sure. and all these little towns, I mean, you really can't find independent pharmacies anymore. They've all been bought up by the big guys. Um, and so there's a good example of a, of a roll up or, you know, private equity, there were private equity groups that rolled up independent pharmacies and then packaged them up and sold them to the Walgreens of the world, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or the CBSs. And so that's, that's the definition of a roll up. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So let, let, it's good time right now to tell everybody how to find you. And that is to go to sunacquisitions.com. And it's just like it sounds, S-U-N-A-C-Q-U-I-S-I-T-I-O-N-S.com. So that's it. And you have a, a form on there where people can request an initial free consultation and get some, you know, sort of like a, you know, a call, a talk with somebody on the staff that can talk to them about some, what some of their options are and things like yes. that, right? Correct. That's right. Yeah. We've got advisors from all different backgrounds, uh, industries and sectors and experiences. And so uh, you make an inquiry and we'll match you up with the right person and, uh, and get a free consultation. Yeah. So what are some of the best practices for deciding to go after this type of funding? How do they approach uh, what they value? Is it really, I mean, you talked about because it can look back at their financials, but is it the same sort of things as what you do in an acquisition where you looked at fixed assets and goodwill and these kind of things that become part of the package? And do you, you know, they always say don't, on VCs, don't just go knock on their door because they're reviewing so many stuff. So, you know, how does it, how does a, an entrepreneur or a founder of a company, a CEO of a company like that, navigate that kind of space. And I, and I know you help them with that, but you know how people are, they want to try to go right. and, and, you know, you know, try to DIY when they first get going until they realize it's a hot, lot harder than they thought. And then yeah. and within that context, is there always required to have a broker in the middle of it because they are selling things like a part of like a M and a type of a transaction? Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. Uh, and I, you know, you you hit the nail on the head. You've got to start with the right advisors, and beyond an M and A advisor like myself, you have to remember that private equity is really smart money. These are guys that do deals all day long. They analyze businesses all day long, so they know what they're doing. They're really professional, and uh, if they get a sense that you don't have your house in order. Uh, you know, they could bolt pretty quickly. So yep. you want to surround yourself with really good M&A advisors, M&A accountant, M&A attorney, M&A intermediary like myself, and do some homework ahead of time. Um, get your house in order. You know, are your financials in really good order? 
Do you have a really good plan, strategic plan for your business? Do you know where someone would take the business uh, if they were, you know, where would they grow it? You know, so if they came in and knowing that all buyers, not just private equity, but all buyers want to take your business to the next level, what can people do to take it to the next level? And what are the sort of investments that they might have to make to get there? Um, and they're going to ask you why you haven't done it yourself, right? Uh, but you need to understand all of these things. Put your systems and your operations in order. Solidify your people. Take care of your key employees. Make sure that, you know, if there's a transition that's going to happen somewhere down the road, that they're secured uh, for the transaction on a go-forward basis. You know, so do all the things that you need to do to, you know, that, that a private equity group is going to ask you in discovery so you can put your best foot forward. And then, you know, there are any number of private equity groups that are going to do transactions in different industries. So going to just one private equity group uh, puts all of the leverage in their hands. So if you're going to pull off a strategy like this, you really want to identify all of the private equity groups. And I'm also going to lump into that family offices. We haven't really mm -hmm. talked about family offices, but private equity and family offices that do transactions in your industry and see which ones would be a good fit for you to go approach and, and have a plan to go do that. Um, and so I think put your house in order, identify who they are, and, and don't just go negotiate with one. You want to negotiate with many. It's the only way to know that you've gotten true true market value. It's the same thing that you do when you bring your you know your business to VCs, right? You do a bake off and you figure out you know who wants to give you the highest valuation, right? No different with private equity. Yeah. So now within that context, do, do does the entrepreneur, the company say propose the terms, or do the private equity funds propose the terms? How does how do they get to the table to start that discussion? So that could happen either way. Either you could put a, a value on your business uh, and terms and bring it to the market and say, look, this is what we believe our business is worth. These are the terms that we're willing to accept. Are you willing to play? Most deals, though, don't go down that way. Um, most, most businesses, and especially the ones that we represent, we will take the business out to the market and present the performance of the business. Uh, and then we'll have what we do, what we call a call date, where we'll invite all interested parties to come in and express their interest yeah. and what relative terms they're willing to offer for that business. And based on, you know, what people offer, we decide which ones we're going to invite into the next stage of the process, where we now would let them start to do some discovery so they can sharpen their pencils and do final bids. Wow. Um, because it makes no sense to go into discovery with folks who are not willing to pay you, you know, a minimum threshold yeah, on a purchase sure. price. And it's not just about purchase price, the terms, right, of the overall transaction. And so uh, that's mostly how we would handle, you know, a, a, a deal to the private equity, uh, private equity or family office marketplace yeah and then there's probably once you've got the the big rocks figured out then they maybe if there's a good match then they kind of finesse some of the the smaller details that 
might be of personal interest to the the founder that's exiting out and okay. stuff like that that's you know that that will are the ones that can put the little bow on a on and you know and it's those little things that sometimes can make or break a deal right yeah you see deals fall apart for the littlest of things but they mattered to one side or the other right. um so you know you could I find that people more easily agree on purchase price, but it's all the little terms that trip folks up. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And now, you know, you were talking about sort of some of these things that they need to know, have kind of gotten to their operational sides, uh, standardizing, you know, having really good, clean financials, having their, their legal paperwork, their I's dotted, their T's crossed when it comes to their employees, whatever their golden parachutes are, all that kind of stuff, right? So now are those some of the things that you and Sun Acquisition offer with companies or do they need to come already have that stuff together? Yeah, no, we hope uh, that owners come to us well in advance of wanting to do this. So we have an opportunity to work with them on this level. Uh, You know, one of the problems with privately held companies is that they rarely prepare for these events. They, they, and even when they think they've prepared, inevitably they come to us and they haven't really done all of the things they should have done to, to be able to maximize their value. Maximize and, the value. That's a big and, one. And minimize their risks. Yeah. And so we just sold a business that provided mobile banking disaster recovery. So you have a branch location that goes down because of a flood or a hurricane, or maybe they just need to take it out of service to to refurbish it. This firm brings in mobile units and it can do everything that you did at the branch level with all of the security that the branch had. We first met the owner of that business six years ago. And when we met him six years ago, uh, we did what we call a market uh, evaluation for him. We also did an overview on all of the key value drivers of his business. We delivered the report and two things were clear. One, the value wasn't anywhere near what he needed in order to exit. And two, there were tons of things that he could do to increase the value that were low hanging fruit. And so we gave him the report, he went off and every year we touch base, sometimes a couple of times a year, and we check in to see how his plan was coming along. And a couple of times we even uh, re-opt the uh, analysis. And after six years, he finally got to the point where he's like, okay, I think we're there. We took him to market and seven months later we had it sold and he sold it for a price that was even over what we had thought uh, the value of the business was gonna be. And so great story and it's exactly what owners should do take the time to prepare. It's usually an owner's largest asset, largest, mm-hmm. larger than their homes, larger than what they have in their investment portfolios, yet it doesn't get near the attention that many other investments that owners have. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, I first became aware of that sort of strategy of an owner being, you know, exiting out with a chunk or that's an outright, you know, acquisition, but, you know, exiting out, having a five-year plan to finish and grow the thing. When I was first starting uh, launch funding network, which is, is now just a brand underneath my company. And we were starting to do the advisory kinds of stuff. Um, 
and uh, and hadn't yet taken over the angel investor group that I ended up running and rebuilding. And this company had come to us very similar sort of scenario. And he was doing where it was a very customized type of reupholstery and would go into like hotels and reupholster and refinish all of, you know, whatever, and usually historic, pro, you know, furniture kind of stuff. And we did the same thing. We were like, well, you got, you know, it's your books, it's your operations. It was like, because if he wasn't there, it didn't make any money. Right. And so, and it was really tough for him to accept that he was going to have to do all of that, that they wouldn't just like do it because, you know, buy it because he, you know, whatever, like, and it's a, so sometimes it's, there's the, the, the black and the white or the, uh, what's on the paper. And then there's a mental transition and an emotional transition that owners have to come through and it's probably bang their head on the wall here or there, you know, waste some money in other ways until they finally see that, what you're talking about is, is the real fa- I mean, that's just really how those kinds of transactions happen because of the smart money of it is what you're talking yeah. about, you know, without, without a doubt. And, and, you know, and here, here's the um, unfortunate downside of not doing the prep. There's a date on the calendar in which most businesses are going to transact, whether that's succession to the next generation, whether that's to a third party, a liquidation, whatever it is. And the problem is that date may come at your choosing and one not of your choosing. Yeah. And what you don't want to have happen is you had all this time to do preparation, maximize the value of your business. And you were waiting because the date wasn't near. And all of a sudden the date gets thrust upon you. And now you're having to sell an asset at a significantly reduced value on your terms that are probably not favorable at all. I just, I, I just had a conversation with somebody where this happened to them. They got diagnosed um, uh, with, uh, you know, a rare form of liver disease and, you know, they had built this business and all of a sudden they had three months to sell the business. Oh, he wow. hadn't done all the things he needed to do to get prepared and wasn't a good outcome. And, that could have been avoided because he had plenty of years to build the value, to build the succession. And even, <clears throat> excuse me, even if that had happened, if he had built the plan, he would have had a way for that business to operate with or without him so that he could get the business sold in an orderly fashion at maximum value. And that just wasn't the case. Yeah. Somebody well, got a, somebody got a real deal. Yeah. Yeah, those are the turnarounds that they talk about, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it wasn't even a turnaround. It was a pretty healthy company. It just, without him, uh, it was going to be dicey. And he paid the price for that. Yeah. Well, there's, um, and so part of, you know, when I wrote my book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, it was really to help those investors that are not part of traditional angel groups that were not part of, you know, the tech angel investor community, but we're sort of your meat and potatoes, bread and butter kind of investors that understood how to read a term sheet, understood how to read a, a financial statement, a balance sheet, not a term sheet. You know, all the things that you, you associate with normal business operations because they themselves are executives in, in companies and they wanted to invest in companies that had track record or had, you know, you know, things like that. 
as really, and what this leads into, because I, you know, have recognized that there's this gap of, of the angels to the VCs and then they plateau and this whole other source of capital that I think is so often underutilized. I go to the Association of Corporate Growth meetings every once in a while, and I'm always amazed at how few entrepreneurs are ever in those meetings or at any of their capital connections events. And it's just an incredible source of potential growth capital to accomplish different things that a founder might want to accomplish. And it was important for me to have you on the show because as I work towards my next book, is, which is focused on entrepreneurs that are, that are stuck and are trying to scale and they need to understand this. So sometimes they might be able to use some of the Jobs Act ways of raising capital and raise some of the money they might need. If they're in a thing where all the dollar they're growing organically because of revenue, they could raise an interim stage of capital to get to the point, to pay for the services, to do the things that they need to do with their own specific plan that says, I wanna be at a point that I can go and attract private equity infusion of growth capital two years from now, three years from now, what do I gotta do to go do that? And that's you know feeding in and uh, you know, for me, helping those entrepreneurs get to that point so they can you know, truly be ready for your types of services to be able to get to your network of private equity funds. Yeah, and you know, as an asset class, pre-pandemic, private equity had raised a billion and a half dollars to go make acquisitions. Billion and a half, it's an incredible amount of money. Um, I'm sorry, trillion and a half. What am I saying? Yeah. <laughs> and, and trillion and a half. So you think about, I mean, all the money sitting out there on the sidelines, right? To be deployed, incredible amount of money sitting out there. Yeah, absolutely. So as we get ready to wrap up here, um, I, um, I want to give you an opportunity to plug your M&A Unplugged podcast and tell people how to find you and kind of what your topic is. And I think we're working on a date that I can be a guest on your show as well. So tell folks about that and then we'll, you know, issue some final thoughts and comments. Yeah. So, you know, M&A Unplugged um, is born out of uh, my years of experience and seeing that owners uh, and even acquirers don't do the work they need to do ahead of time. They, they fail to prepare. And so we launched M&A, the M&A Unplugged podcast 18 months ago with the sole purpose of educating owners of privately held companies on buying and selling businesses so that they're, they're educated and they know what it, what it goes into actually having to prepare uh, for a transaction. And so it's been tremendous. I, I, I've loved every step of the journey. Uh, we're fulfilling our mission every day and it's, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and out of that, we launched a new company that now specializes in helping people do just that, prepare for their transactions. Oh. Uh, and so, because it is honestly the number one pitfall that people make, they fail to really take a step back and think about what it takes to actually buy or sell a business and the time. I mean, right. it could take years in some, I gave you an example of six years, you know, it could take a long time to get prepared to do this, not as much to buy, but certainly to sell could take some time. And so, uh, we're dedicated to helping people, you know, be prepared. 
And the way to reach me, you've already talked about it on my website or my email, drinaldi, D-R-I-N-A-L-D-I at sunacquisitions.com. Okay, great. And so is the, uh, do they get to the M&A unplugged just through your website or is it on like they Apple? Get on, and... They can get to it on our website or it's on all the major podcast platforms. Okay. Uh, okay, very good. All right. Anything else you would like to add as your as we wrap up? Any final thoughts? You know, the only thing I would say is we see the marketplace um, being very robust the next couple of years. 2020 was a record year for us. Really? There are tons of buyers and lots of money out there. And so it's a, it's a really good time to consider uh, a sale or a recapitalization of a business because lots of money and lots of buyers. And really appreciate you having me. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I think this has been a great uh, conversation and I think our listeners uh, will, will have, have found value out of the information that you shared. I'm certain of that. And I want to encourage folks to comment and share this podcast with other people that you think would value from it and are, are in that mode where they're trying to figure out what are they going to do to sell their company in the coming years. And you know, here you have uh, an expert in that space that can help along the way. Thank you very much, Dominic. And I want to encourage everybody to go to my website, karenrands.co, and uh, get hold of the other podcasts. Of course, this podcast is available on all those same platforms, but also, um, you know, get some information about the book. If you're, if you're somebody that wants to diversify your portfolio beyond real estate and the stock market and invest in private companies, I think one of our future conversations is going to be how um, people decide whether they will acquire a company, if they have enough capital to, to acquire a company as individuals or start a company or what do they need to go about doing. And you as somebody that's looking at the listeners or looking at getting involved in investing in this asset class, you know, get the book. So with that, I want to say thank you again for being on the show. Really appreciated it. Onwards and upwards. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougaran Capital Holdings, 
It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.